Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 38. This time we explore Conan Doyle's lifelong fascination with true crime through strange studies from life, his dramatic retellings of three murder cases which appeared in The Strand in spring 1901. And here's Paul to introduce the stories. In early 1901, Arthur Conan Doyle embarked upon a proposed series of 12 factual studies of true life crime cases for The Strand magazine. In the end, he only completed three. The Holocaust of Manor Place, The Love Affair of George Vincent Parker, and The Debatable Case of Mrs Emsley, which appeared in the issues for March, April and May. All concerned sensational murder cases from the 1860s, and all raised uncomfortable questions about the validity of capital punishment. The Strange Studies from Life were written over the winter of 1900-1901, just as Conan Doyle was becoming more of a public figure, really. His writing had given him a platform in the 1890s, and he'd always been outspoken. But on his return from the Boer War in July 1900, he seems to have stepped up his uh, presence as a, a as a public figure. He gave evidence um, before the South Africa Hospital Commission to argue for military reform. And then in September, he decided to stand for the Liberal Unionists and contested the seat uh, of Edinburgh Central in the uh, in the 1900 election, the Khaki election, as it was known. And as Paul said, around this time, he pitched a, a true crime series to the Strand. It may well have been that his mind was turning to public policy issues. And those first three parts, um, Manor Place, George Vincent Parker, and the case of Mrs. Emsley were printed in the March, April, and May issues of the Strand in 1901. But from the first, Conan Doyle seems to have been distinctly uncomfortable about the project. And he wrote to Greenhouse Smith saying, I don't think I ever felt more uncertain about anything. However, since they've gone out to be illustrated, let it stand. But I will write no more until we see how these seem to go. Uh, As for the public reaction, um, Andrew Lysett notes that Conan Doyle called a halt to the series uh, after receiving letters of complaint from the families of those involved. But there might also be the case that Conan Doyle had just become generally disenchanted with the whole theme. Uh, there's a, a one line at the end of the second of those uh, stories where Conan Doyle describes the crime as being characterized by all that inconsequence and grim artlessness which distinguishes fact from fiction. Uh, as it happened, though, he had the perfect get out because at the end of April 1901, just as the third of the strange studies uh, was appearing in the Strand, he took a short break. Uh, at Cromer in Norfolk with a new friend, Bertram Fletcher Robinson, who was a correspondent for the Daily Express, who he'd met on the return journey from South Africa in July 1900. 
And it was there that Robinson sowed the seed of an idea for a story about a monstrous demon hound that they agreed to write together. Uh, Conan Doyle wrote excitedly to his mother about this new creeper, which he was going to call the Hound of the Baskervilles. And he very quickly pitched the idea to Greenhouse Smith. And though it was a standalone Gothic story at the time, a few weeks later, it would become a Sherlock Holmes story. Fletcher Robinson's name disappeared into the background and the rest of it is history. Presumably the Strand were more than eager to release Conan Doyle from his obligations to write Strange Studies, given the opportunity to have a new Sherlock Holmes story. The three Strange Studies from Life were originally collected in 1963 by the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Literary Society, a short-lived group that had intended to produce an annual publication, but in the end only produced uh, this single volume. And it was later reprinted with other true crime narratives by Jack Tracy in 1988. Yes, it, it's really um, it's really fascinating what you say there about the, the, the Hand of the Baskervilles, Mark, because you, you, you've got to wonder if this is why these three pieces have, have virtually disappeared. Mm. Doyle wanted them forgotten, essentially. Um, and and then you've got the hound comes along this 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 real blockbuster mm-hmm. um, and and even today the, the the strange studies from life just just aren't well known by 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 Holmes or Doyle aficionados. Yes, yeah, indeed. Mm. The other thing that's not that well known is is really the extent of Conan Doyle's interest in true crime. I mean, obviously he's known for his involvement in the Edelgy case and the case of Oscar Slater. But he actually had a lifelong interest in true crime, really from childhood. His father had illustrated uh, criminal trials in Edinburgh for the Illustrated Times. And the Doyle family friend, John Hill Burton, wrote, uh, I think it's a two-volume work, Narratives from Criminal Trials in Scotland in the 1850s. Um, And there there was actually quite an extensive study of Conan Doyle's relationship with true crime by Peter Costello in The Real World of Sherlock Holmes in 1991. And he noted that, you know, these influences plus others in Edinburgh might have contributed to this early fascination. Um, One of the one of the really interesting things he brings out there is the fact that Edinburgh was a centre of very early crime writing. Uh, James McGovern, who wrote a series of works with titles like Brought to Bay or Experiences of a City Detective or Traced and Tracked or Memoirs of a City Detective, which actually sold in in very great numbers. They went to the 11th, 12th, 13th editions. I always think it's quite interesting that those those stories have those titles, experiences of, records of, recollections of, memoirs of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there might well be something else that Conan Doyle remembered. But also as a child, he had a taste for the bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. In 1872, at the tender age of 13, he saw the play The Courier of Leon, which was based on the novel by Charles Reed, uh, which in itself was based on a criminal trial from 1796 about a particularly gruesome stagecoach robbery in which the driver and the guard were brutally killed. And Conan Doyle, on seeing this play in 1872, wrote to his mother and said it was a jolly play and put in brackets, five murders. <laughs> But two years after seeing that play, he went to London to stay with his aunt and uncle. Um, This was late 1874. And it was at that time that he visited the famous Madame Tussauds and the the Chamber of Horrors. And Costello points out that actually there were three displays there that are directly relevant to this topic. One of them was the mutiny aboard the Flowery Land. One of them was the William Youngman case, which became the Holocaust of Manor place. And the third was um, Mrs. Emsley. And in fact, the, the museum had a 
recreation of uh, the the room in which uh, Mrs. Emsley was found. And it obviously stayed with him because in uh, December 1903, he spoke at the centenary dinner for Madame Tussauds and recounted the thrill of entering the sacred halls of the Chamber of Horrors. It's always struck me that the timing of that is quite interesting in that only a few months earlier, Conan Doyle had uh, written The Empty House, in which, of course, the waxwork bust of Sherlock Holmes is the MacGuffin, and he must have been booked for the dinner by then. But but he also had this interest from childhood in the macabre, and that's probably seen as much in uh, in his fascination with the works of Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, and, and Poe is particularly pertinent to, to, to bring in at this juncture. Um, really thinking of the the mystery of Murray Rocher, mm. uh, in which Poe reset the actual death of of Mary Rogers, the cigar girl in in New mm. York. He he simply gave her name, a French flavour, mm. and moved the setting of 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 the crime to to, to Paris, um, and set Dupin on the case. Uh, but un- unfortunately, uh, Poe then did one of his usual things and got a bit um, carried away with his own cleverness <laughs> and turned what was a promising story essentially into, into an essay. Yes. Yeah. And, and this is the danger of this whole crime writers wandering into the true crime genre, as we will certainly see as we, we investigate these strange studies from life more closely. Yeah. And uh, yeah, another writer who we've mentioned on the podcast before who comes in at this point, I think, is... Alexander Dumas as well, who wrote this eight-volume Celebrated Crimes, which was uh, written between about 1839 and and 1841. It wasn't just Dumas' work, but it was uh, with the assistance of several collaborators. And it it was really a series of around about 20 articles, which were sort of retelling the the real-life events. I mean, probably the most notable story in there is is the case of um, Lucretia Borgia, we know that this was in Conan Doyle's possession because Margaret Fox in Conan Doyle for the Defence, which was a book that came out about the Conan Doyle and the Oscar Slater case, notes that Conan Doyle amassed a library of non-fiction, true crime books and clippings, which included uh, Dumas' eight-volume uh, edition of Celebrated Crimes. And in fact, throughout his life, he collected true crime volumes. In 1911, he purchased 51 true crime volumes from the estate of W.S. Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan fame. And uh, the the Harry Ransom Center in the U.S. actually has Conan Doyle's copy of Gilbert's copy <laughs> of the Newgate calendar, which, of course, uh, was uh, a, a very um, influential uh, text in, in that it sort of inspired a number of 19th century uh, crime writers. And uh, there was some criticism, indeed, at the time of the, quotes, Newgate school of writing. Thackeray regarded uh, Oliver Twist as being an, an example of it. And in fact, uh, Dickens does reference the Newgate calendar twice in, in Oliver Twist as well. Um, so he, he definitely had a, a lifelong interest in true crime. It, and it, it's notable that, that, um, that he doesn't particularly mention this in Through the Magic Door. No, it's he not something he boasts about. He talks with real love and affection of, of his Napoleonic memoirs or his books on boxing, mm. the, the true crime collection and his taste for true crime literature uh, is, is, is very much sidelined. Yes, I think there's a sense in which, even in his handling of the three cases discussed here, that he sees that there's something disreputable <laughs> in the whole business. So let's um, take a look at these three stories in, in a bit more detail. So, Paul, what was the, the Holocaust of Manor Place about? 
Uh, th- this story is um, based on a case from 1860. Um, and the, the two central characters are a 25-year-old man called William Godfrey Youngman, uh, who's a, a tailor, um, son of a tailor as well. Um, and he became engaged to a farmer's daughter called Mary Streeter. And on 28th of July, 1860, Youngman invited Mary to stay with his family in London. Um, But before coming, he enjoined her to burn their correspondence, which she didn't. And he also had previously persuaded her to insure her life for £100. She arrived in London on 30th of July um, to stay at 16 Manor Place uh, with Youngman, his parents and his two young brothers. The couple visited the Green Dragon in Bermondsey, um, which was owned by Edward Spicer, who was actually a friend, a family friend of the Streeters. Mm. And he, he just didn't like Youngman on instinct mm. and warned Mary off. Uh, and then later on, they went to see a play starring the great tragedy and William McCready. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then at about 5.30 a.m. on the next morning... Mrs. Beard, who was another lodger in Manor Place, was awoken by a cry and a thud. Uh, her husband and, and a, a man called Bevan, who was actually the landlord, went to see what was going on, and they were confronted by a blood-soaked young man, claiming that his mother had killed Mary and the two young men brothers, and that he, William, had killed his mother in self-defence. A doctor and a policeman were fetched, uh, and young man was, unsurprisingly, arrested. Yeah and uh, sent for trial. Uh, the jury were unconvinced by his story about his mother going mad and, <laughs> and murdering the rest of the family. Uh, and he was uh, hanged on the 4th of September before a crowd of some 30,000 spectators. Yeah. Uh, after studying this story, Conan Doyle's conclusion was that Youngman was probably guilty, mm. <laughs> <laughs> but insane and should really have been placed in an asylum rather than hanged. Yes. Um, and this sort of tees up something that is a bit of a running theme here <laughs> in uh, the three stories, which is Conan Doyle's willingness to accept alternative interpretations of events, no matter how ludicrous <laughs> those alternative explanations may be. Yes, you have to look at the um, the facts that, 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 that Youngman had insured his sweetheart <laughs> life for £100 and that he'd enjoined her to burn letters and correspondence. That kind of does suggest a certain amount of malice aforethought. Mm-hmm. One of the things that struck me about this one was that um, for all this is an incredibly brutal and bloody crime. Actually, Conan Doyle doesn't go into a huge amount of detail. The horrors are really sort of off camera. And at one point, Conan Doyle says, uh, the motives and mind of the murderer are of perennial interest to every student of human nature, but the vile record of his actual brutality may be allowed to pass away when the ends of justice have once been served by their recital. And he kind of sweeps it away a bit like, I just wondered if he was trying to appease strand readers' tastes, um, <laughs> or maybe uh, he felt that this sort of prurient interest was was beneath them. Yeah, I, it's, it'd be interesting to know um, what, what uh, Greenhouse Smith, the editor of The Strand, what role he might have played mm. in this, and if, if he'd suggested toning them down, or because the... The Strand, although it had plenty of crime fiction in it, um, it was still aimed at a very sort of middle-class market. 
um, and there's a degree of, of a family market to yes. it as well. I mean, you just look at some of the other articles you'll find in it. You know, here's, here's, here's three pages of, of, of photographs of funny-shaped potatoes, that sort of thing, to amuse <laughs> yes. the children. Yes. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of that going on. Or it, it tried to present itself as a, as a, as a higher class of magazine. Yeah. Again, there is very much, I think, this sense of, of, of a middle-class Victorian, Edwardian family audience that thus far are no further. Mm. The other thing that you see in the Holocaust of Manor Place is that Conan Doyle is trying to do um, a kind of study of criminal psychology. And in this case, his big point is a somewhat peculiar one. He talks a lot about the selfishness of young men. He says, uh, in the study of criminal psychology, one is forced to the conclusion that the most dangerous of all types of mind is that of the inordinately selfish man. He is a man who has lost his sense of proportion. His own will and his own interest have blotted out for him the duty which he owes to the community. Selfishness is no harmless peccadillo, but is an evil root from which the most monstrous growths may spring. But to sort of present selfishness as a kind of form of insanity to some extent which is kind of where he ends up at the end of this just doesn't really make sense there's an interesting aside he makes though where he draws a comparison from the character of William Youngman to the character of Sir Willoughby Patton from George Meredith's The Egoist from 1879 which was kind of breakthrough novel for, for Meredith Conan Doyle wrote uh, Patton was the eternal type of all egoists uh, maybe an amusing and harmless character as long as things go well with him but let him be thwarted, let the thing which he desires be withheld from him, and the most monstrous results may follow. Yeah, and, and this this is also obviously frequently echoed throughout the, the, the Sherlockian canon. I mean, you have to think of, of, of a character like Dr. Grimsby Roylet, mm. who is you know, killing off his, his stepdaughters. Just, just for a pittance, really. But, mm. um, or, or if you think of the time Doyle was writing these, Jack Stapleton, yes, and the Hound, who's, who's, you know, everything is is focused on his own, his own gain, and um, you know, the, this idea, like you say, the the community, and and Doyle makes ironic points about this with Stapleton throughout the Hound, mm. uh, with the with the small community that they're they're mixed up in. Um and, and the converse really, I suppose you could say that this this is what Holmes stands against. Yes. He's very self contained, very self centered at times, but he actually uses his powers for the good of the community. Yes. And his 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 personality is, is used for positive reasons. Um he, he is that flip side of these sort of e- egotistical villains. Yes, I think the selfishness mm. is about the sort of breakdown of the social contract in mm. in, mm. in Conan Doyle's eyes. Yeah. Mm. So so let's have a look at the second one of these stories, which was mm-hmm. the the love affair of George Vincent Parker. Yeah, this this case um, begins in the early eighteen sixties uh, with with a, a young man called George Victor Townley, whom Conan Doyle renames George Vincent Parker. Mm. Um, he was the son of a Manchester commission agent and became engaged to, to a young lady called Elizabeth Goodwin, whom Conan Doyle renames Mary Groves, uh, whom he had met at a musical soiree. He was of an artistic temperament, and his prospects were vague. <laughs> Thus, unsurprisingly, she later changed her mind and chose another man, a young clergyman, and asked to be released from her engagement to Townley. He begged for one more meeting, which occurred on the 21st of August at Wigwell Grange near Worksworth. 
during which he fatally stabbed her. There was no doubt about his guilt, and he was sentenced to hang. Doubts about his sanity, however, led to a commutation of sentence to life imprisonment. But a year after his incarceration at Pentonville, he committed suicide by throwing himself from a prison gantry. Mm. Conan Doyle concurs with the conclusion of madness and approves of the commutation of the death sentence. Um, But interestingly, he doesn't mention Townley's latest suicide. Now, we don't know whether this, this is delicacy or is it delicacy towards surviving members of the family or are there, are there other reasons? I think you have a theory, Mark. Um, yes, I mean, well, one of the things that has been suggested is this idea that Townley's suicide raises the prospect. Would the death sentence have been a, a more humane um, outcome? there's a real difficulty here in that. We know that Conan Doyle is prone to playing fast and loose (laughs) with the facts when he wants to. And indeed, in some of the cases around Eagle and Slater, he decides to sort of downplay certain facts as well. And uh, I think this just doesn't quite fit his narrative. Uh, It it starts to raise more questions. Uh, So I think this is why he he leaves this one out, really. Mm. I mean, it it would certainly fit in with his his theory of supporting the the insanity um diagnosis but um it, it's it's an uncomfortable one it's it's also the, the the subject itself um even with the victorians for all their relative openness about the subject of death mm. suicide was a difficult one and again do you want to be talking about this in 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 a magazine like like the strand yeah and I think this is one of the stories that really shows the passage of time because there are elements of this that make very hard reading for a contemporary audience, mm. I think, in that uh, he, he talks about crimes of passion being more interesting than crimes of greed, but is also sort of implying that there's that they're a lesser offence. He says the two classes of crime may be punished by the same severity, but we feel that they are not equally sordid and that none of us is capable of saying how he might act if his affections and his self-respect were suddenly and cruelly outraged. Even when we endorse the verdict, it is still possible to feel some shred of pity for the criminal. His offence has not been the result of a self-interested and cold-blooded plotting, but it has been the consequence, however monstrous and disproportionate, of a cause for which others were responsible, which is quite an astonishing um, statement in this case, because the, the, actually I do think this is a case of um, cold-blooded plotting. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a very cruel case. Yeah. Uh, when you when you look at it, and it's it's almost you know the, the, what you've just read there. It's it, it's quite shocking. It is in a way because he's almost shifting the blame to her. Yeah, he is. Uh, which is 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 just it, it's it, well it, words. It's fail me on this one because it's just just so wrong. It is. And I was looking also at, uh, he gave a talk about 10 years later on the theme of responsible and irresponsible criminals. Mm. Uh, The the details of that speech don't survive. We don't know what he covered Mm. in it. But I do wonder if that was part of his thinking where he's trying to weigh the the, the merits and sinfulness of different types of crime. I mean, there is something deeper to this, which we'll come back to, which was, of course, insanity. Um, mm. and, and the personal family connection to it as well. But I don't think he comes out very well in the, particularly this case um, because it is such a horrible concept to sort of shift the blame onto the, onto the woman who's decided that she no longer wishes to be engaged to this, to this man. Mm. Um, 
There is one bit of the this story that I, I did particularly like, which is where he quotes directly from the letter that Parker sends to his former fiance, um, which is particularly florid. And Conan Doyle sort of dissects this. Um, and he comes up with a, a really interesting line. He says, as Professor Owen would reconstruct an entire animal out of a single bone, so from this one little letter, the man stands flagrantly revealed, the scraps of French, the self-conscious allusion to his own savoir-faire, the florid assurances which mean nothing, they are all so many strokes in a subtle self-portrait. And I kind of wish there was more of this kind of stuff within mm. the Strange Studies from Life, where Conan Doyle is tapping into the inherent drama and the um, characterization. Um, but but actually, in, in practice, the people in this story really don't come alive at all. And I think this is a common thing that he struggles with in all of the mm. Strange Studies, actually. And there's also an element there uh, where you've got him wanting it both ways. <laughs> yeah. So you've you've got him almost letting Townley stroke Parker off the hook yeah. at the end. But here, he's condemning this kind of manipulative individual. Yeah. There's, there's quite a bit of this in, this in the Strange Studies from Life. Yes. He's, he's playing a double game. Yeah. So let's have a look at the third of these, which Conan uh, Doyle called The Debatable Case of Mrs. Emsley. Yeah, th this one was actually quite a cause celeb mm. at, at the time. And, and and it really was one of the talking points of the year, um, together with the, the Road Hill House murder um, of, of three-year-old Savile Kent in Wiltshire. And also, at a cultural level, Wilkie Collins' hugely successful sensation novel, The Woman in White. Yes. So all, all these three things were really in, in, in the public consciousness at, at the time. As, uh, Mrs. Mrs. Emsley herself was a, a, a wealthy slum landlord who lived frugally and often collected her own rents. Um, but she did occasionally also employ rent collectors and handymen to look after her properties. Mm. Uh, and two of these uh, were Walter Ems and George, or James, Mullins. Um, and these two became the prime suspects in her murder. Uh, Mrs. Ems was last seen alive on Monday evening, the 13th of August. Ems, it was, who finally alerted her solicitor to, to Mrs. Emsley's absence on Friday the 17th of August. And these two, Ems and the solicitor, together with, with um, one of Mrs. Ems's relations and a police constable, entered the property and found her dead inside with her head battered in. The police remained baffled. Little had been taken, and I think there was 48 pounds or so found in the coal cellar untouched. Mm. Um, a reward was offered, um, and that still led nowhere until on the 8th of September, Mullins approached the police with some startling information. He had apparently been watching Ems and claimed to have seen him hiding something in a shed near his home at a local brickfields. Hmm. The police eventually found the package with much theatrical help from Mullins, and it contained a few paltry belongings of Mrs. Emsley. The story soon began to unravel, and it became clear that Mullins, who was a disgraced ex-policeman, who had served six years in Dartmoor for robbery, had actually planted this evidence to frame Ems for murder mm. and also to claim the reward. Ems, however, had a solid alibi and Mullins didn't. And he was hanged for Mrs. Emsley's murder on the 19th November 1860 before a crowd of between 20,000 to, 20, to 30,000 spectators. 
and he protested his innocence until the end. Mm. Now, this is a it's, a it's a complex case. It really is, and there's a lot going on here. And um, Conan Doyle's conclusion was that Mullins was very likely guilty, but he felt that a Scottish verdict of not proven would have been more appropriate in the case. Mm. Yes, this one is really all about the accused deserving the benefit of the doubt, really. Mm. Um, but there are other features of this one. Um, Conan really doesn't get across the character of Mrs. Emsley. And when you mm. read the contemporary accounts, and indeed this was featured like the Manor Place case in the annual register for 1860, it was written mm. up as uh, one of the two celebrated criminal trials of the year. It's interesting that some of the witnesses spoke about how dreadful a person Mrs. Emsley <laughs> was. And and Conan Doyle never really gets to the bottom of what the motivations are for um for, for doing this, if it is just money, because there is mm. you know, there was money left in, in, in the house. It put me in mind a bit of um crime and punishment actually. Right at the beginning you have the old woman who is the pawnbroker who is murdered by Russ Kolnikov. Mm. Conan Doyle seems to have no interest in the social conditions. He actually talks about the houses being humble dwellings, which makes <laughs> them sound more like they're in the Shire or something. Yes, it's you know? got a, sort of charm to it. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> he doesn't seem to have any real desire to reflect upon the context in which these these crimes take place. It is very much about the quality of the evidence. Mm, I mean, he doesn't explore the characters involved. Uh, you, you don't get anything about Mullins's background. I think mm. Conan Doyle it talks about something like dreadful antecedents or some such phrase. Yes. Um, but mm, you, you don't get the fact that he'd been one of the, the earliest metropolitan policemen. No. And had actually been on a fast track with promotion and, and become a sergeant very quickly. And was then seconded to Ireland where he served as, as, a, as a police, a spy, essentially. Mm. Mm. Um, and that went wrong and he had to be pulled out. But after that, where he thought he'd get great praise, mm. uh, he was actually um, demoted and just put onto the, 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 the London Railway Police and had this sense of injustice. Um, and in the end, he, he, he ended up uh, being involved with pilfering around the railways and and, um, and and the robbery, which got him into Dartmoor for six years. So you've got this, this very interesting background on him, which none of that comes out in this story. You get no sense of who Ems really was. And Ems was really Mrs. Emsley's leading kind of handyman, rent, rent collector. Mm. Um, and he actually was, was on his way in his own small way to becoming a, a, a slum landlord himself. Yes. Um, so there's, there's that comes in, and also the, the the thing that's not mentioned at all is is that that Mrs. Emsley died intestate, uh-huh. so she had this massive property empire, and then all these relatives start appearing out of the woodwork, <laughs> and it, there's, there's no real real sense of of you know what this murder was really about because because no money you know nothing of value real value was taken. Mm. It seems in little doubt that he planted this evidence, mm, mm. but he was looking through for the reward, whether, whether he had a grudge against Ems, whether he thought, Oh gosh, he might get an innocent man hanged. I don't know if he even really thought that through. No, it, it's, it's, it's an enormously complex case. And even to this day, there's the, you know, we don't know. We, we, no. we don't know. I mean, there, there is a, a full length uh, study of this come out in the past few years, uh, the Mile End murder by um, Sinclair Mackay. Mm 
who comes up with his own suspect, which I, I won't say here in case people want to read it. And uh, But I don't think he's come up with a very likely suspect. Hmm. So I think having looked at the three stories as Conan Doyle has told them and his real lack of interest in the in the people involved and the social setting, I mean, the, the conclusion that we must come to is that his primary interest and reason for writing these is that he's he's making commentary about the process of criminal justice. And, and one of the things that particularly attracts his attention is insanity and whether insanity is a defense that can stand up and be used in the in the in this system of criminal justice yes i mean it's, it's very telling really that, that that we've got three stories here and two of them do hinge on 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 this issue mm. uh, and he makes uh, quite detailed comments on this i mean on on the youngman case uh, talking of the trial he 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 says when it came out at the trial that the family was sodden with lunacy upon both sides, that the wife's mother and the husband's brother were in asylums, and that the husband's father had been in an asylum, it is doubtful whether the case should not have been judged upon medical rather than upon criminal grounds. In these more scientific and more humanitarian days, it is perhaps doubtful whether Youngman would have been hanged, but there was never any doubt as to his fate in 1860. And then when he's talking about the, 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 the Townley-Stroke-Parker case, mm. the whole question turned upon his sanity and led to some curious complications which have caused the whole law upon the point to be reformed. His relations were called to show that madness was rampant in the family and that out of ten cousins, five were insane. His mother appeared in the witness box contending with dreadful vehemence that her son was mad and that her own marriage had been objected to on the ground of the madness latent in her blood. Mm-hmm. It, in many ways, it's, it, it's not surprising, as we discussed earlier, that, that um, some of these stories or cases might have caused offence to the uh, the surviving <laughs> relatives. Yes, indeed. indeed. I mean, Conan must have had his father in the back of his head when he was writing this as well. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I... Well, he, he has a very interesting earlier comment about the, the, the Parker character. He loved music and showed a remarkable aptitude for it. He was an excellent linguist and had some taste in painting. In a word... He was a man of artistic temperament with all the failings of nerve and of character, which Mm. that temperament implies. Surely there's got to be some thinking about his own background there and his own father. Uh, And particularly when he makes the earlier comments about Parker, that he came from a a family which was was in commerce. And then you think of his own father actually being sent from London, from from the bosom of his artistic family. But he would probably have flourished better in London, but would the problems in his character, i.e. his fondness for alcohol and so on, been even worse in London? It, mm. it, it's difficult, but I, th- I think um, Doyle's working some of this through with these. Yes, it does feel like it as well. I mean, he has a quite... Mm. He, he does sort of come down on the lines that the insanity defence is something that could be overused mm. or, or there was a danger in it being overused. Um, he actually describes the uh, judges summing up as common sense. Mm. And um, and the, the judge opened his summing up by saying uh, that the, the world was full of eccentric people and that to grant them all the immunity of madness <laughs> would be a public danger. So obviously sees the fact that insanity is a defense in some cases. 
again, like you're saying before, he's trying mm. to have it both ways, isn't he? He's mm. trying to sort of say, well, there's a public public danger here as well of, from saying, well, everybody's mad and that's mm. why they do these things. I mean, the, just to give some background, I mean, the insanity defense was in place by the time that all three of these cases, it really came into being around 1843 as a result of the attempted assassination of the Prime Minister, Robert Peel, by Daniel McNaughton. McNaughton had uh, walked up to who he thought was Robert Peel and shot him. And it turned out it was actually Edmund Drummond, who was uh, Peel's private secretary. And he was found guilty uh, on the grounds of insanity uh, and lived out his days in in Bedlam. Uh, And then his final, I think his final year was actually in Broadmoor, which had just, just opened. But Queen Victoria was very concerned of the message that this case was sending because she herself, of course, was the subject of several assassination attempts. And uh, she wrote to the Prime Minister, again, uh, characteristically not amused. Um, and, uh, and and as a result, the House of Lords convened a panel of judges to consider a series of hypothetical cases and came up with uh, what became known as the McNaughton Rule, which basically said that um, every man is to be presumed to be sane and that to establish a defence on the ground of insanity, it must be proved clearly that at the time of the committing of the act, the party accused was labouring under such a defect of reason from disease of the mind as not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if he did know it, that he did not know what he was doing was wrong. Uh, I mean, there are uh, alternative interpretations of the McNaughton case, of course. I mean, he would, one of the weird things about it was that he was found with £750 on his possession, and he was a, he was a woodturner by trade. Now, how a woodturner would have on him uh, the equivalent of £80,000 today is a bit of a, a mystery. And in fact, it has been suggested that perhaps he was actually paid to try to assassinate mm-hmm. um, uh, assassinate Peel. The, the, the idea of insanity comes up again in divorce law reform, mm-hmm. his campaigns for divorce law reform, where he's, he argues that actually if um, a woman is married to a man who is insane, then that should be grounds for divorce as well. But also, of course, he then uses it in cases like Roger Casement, mm. uh, argues that Casement was mad. And uh, and again, that, that thing about medical rather than criminal judgment, that sounds very much like his uh, words about Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the Wilde case as well, as he reports it in Memories and Adventures, he reveals the limits of his own sense of humour <laughs> on this sort of where Wilde came up to him. Have you seen my latest play? It's marvellous. Just and Doyle took this absolutely seriously. I thought the man must be mad. <laughs> you know? so it's, it's, it's again that sort of interpretation. Hmm. I think he is quite alert to the idea that there might be uh, a medical interpretation of this. There might mm. be a, an alternative interpretation. The criminal justice system mm. is not the place to treat some of these people. Well, perhaps this this might provide some of the key to the appearance of these these story come articles. In that, from what we have read, we 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 think that Doyle himself instigated them. Yes, uh, and maybe he he did. This this is a grounds for this. This is a great platform for me to to campaign on these issues. And then, as he's going through it, it's just beginning to drag him down, and it must have brought up things to do with his father, hmm. who had been in these asylums. So again, is that bringing him down? Is that I don't want to. Yes, maybe. And that's another reason why he just abandons the project. Yes, yeah. Mm. I mean, the the one area that he is absolutely clear on, I think, is uh, his opposition to capital punishment. Mm. Oh, uh, yeah, that's that's the other 
central theme at the heart of of of, of these the three that we've got mm. and and this becomes particularly clear in in the the mrs Hemsley murder mm. and in the almost the preface to the, the the main discussion of the case conan doyle says this lord tenterden has whittled down the theory of doubt by deciding that a jury is justified in giving its verdict upon such evidence as it would accept to be final in any of the issues of life. But when one looks back and remembers how often one has been very sure mm. and yet has erred in the issues of life, how often what has seemed certain has failed us and that which appeared impossible has come to pass, we feel that if the criminal law has been conducted upon such principles, it is probably itself the giant murderer of England. Far wiser is the contention that it is better that 99 guilty should escape than that an innocent man should suffer, and that therefore, if it can be claimed that there is one chance in a hundred in favour of the prisoner, he is entitled to his acquittal. Mm. And so it's, 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 it's pretty strong stuff and pretty clear. Yeah, absolutely. Already opposition to, to the dangers of capital punishment, um, as has been proved time and time again. I think it is very much that fear of a miscarriage of justice that is at the heart of Cundall's opposition to capital punishment, punishment certainly at this time. And you, you get actually a, a probably a more compelling treatment of this in another story by Conan Doyle, the story of B-24, which was one of the round the fire stories, and it um, it appeared in eighteen ninety nine. So probably wrote this about eighteen months before he wrote the strange studies. And um, the story is really a kind of discourse on the frailties of the criminal justice system, and specifically on false convictions. So the the, the very title of the story B twenty four is uh, a commentary on um, the peril of the individual, because the convict in the case, this burglar who is accused of being a murderer. Um, never it doesn't actually get a name in the entire in the entire story, and the case hinges on uh, the fact that when he burgled the house, uh, the lord of the the manor was was murdered. In fact, he, he was murdered, we think, by the lady of the manor. Um, and um, it's a a really fascinating story because Conan Doyle poses really searching questions of his readers um, on matters of criminal behaviour and on recidivism. So. Is the burglary mitigated by the fact that um, the burglar has tried hard to follow the straight and narrow, for example? Or is the lady of the manor's act justified because her husband's been cruel towards her? And um, and in fact, the whole story is framed as B24's appeal to the reader, a, a sort of unseen and unnamed potential advocate. And, and so Conadal is very much directly addressing the reader in that in, in that case, but you you never get to the bottom of it. You never get a verdict. It's a I think it's a much more powerful treatment of this case. But it's about in in Conan Doyle's eyes, I think the wickedness of capital capital punishment um, for fear that you know a miscarriage of justice takes place. Mm, the, 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 <clears throat> there must be punishment, obviously, which which in terms of, of life imprisonment. Mm. Um, but there is also this. Again, the campaigning side of, of, of Conan Doyle, which, which is possibly also inspired by, by some of his other reading. One of his, his uh, favourite authors who you mentioned earlier, Charles Reed, mm. who used his novels for this sort of reason. It's never too late to mend and Ticket of Leave Man. Yeah. That sort of thing. And, and, but he also, um, Reed, I mean, Reed was a, a trained barrister uh, yeah. as well as a novelist. And, uh, and he actually 
um, wrote a, a series for the Daily Telegraph, um, which was based upon an 1877 murder case in which a wife had apparently been starved to death by her husband and some of his relatives. Um, but there was medical doubt that, that she might actually have died from tubercular meningitis mm-hmm. and the medical evidence wasn't allowed in court. Um, and, and Reed seized on this and, and wrote a series of, of um, anti-capital punishment letters mm. uh, under the title, Hang in Haste, Repent at Leisure. <laughs> and this is very much along mm. the same sort of lines as, 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 as Doyle is writing. It's, it's once you've made the mistake, it's irrevocable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I should add as a footnote to this as well, Conan Doyle's opposition to capital punishment did continue throughout his life. And took a distinctly bizarre turn in the in the in the nineteen twenties uh, when it became conflated with spiritualism. And uh, uh, in in the land of mist, um, there's a the the great ghost hunting chapter with Lord John Roxton, um, and there's a cleric in that Mason who uh, uh, refers to evil spirits being released to prey on the living as a result of capital punishment. He says, uh, if they've been cruel, cunning brutes in life, they're cruel and cunning still with more power to hurt. It is evil monsters of this kind who are let loose by our system of capital punishment, for they die with unused vitality, which may be expended upon revenge. Um, But even, I mean, incredibly, in, in the history of spiritualism, 1926, he actually claims that, you know, individuals might commit crimes because they are possessed by evil spirits. Uh, and and very late in life, uh, in an article called The Detective of the Future for a New York uh, newspaper in 1929, uh, he actually said uh, that um, uh, the higher teachers in the other world do not approve of capital punishment and will not help to bring about the death of the criminal. So, you know, he... I think he's he's trying to find even then additional reasons, no matter how ludicrous, for why capital punishment is a is a, is a bad idea. It carries with him right through to right through to his death, actually. And it, it, it's 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 good that you mention here uh, the use Doyle made of his fiction mm. um, on on these issues, you know, B twenty four and and the Land of Mist, you know, for very very different purposes. Yes, um, but it, it is one of the problems that's at the heart of the strange studies is this this born novelist and short story writer trying to write these stories from life in an essay form yes and feeling uncomfortable with it yes um and and you 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 almost get an element of this in in the um the vincent parker case um in fiction, we make people say and do what we should conceive them to be likely to say or do. But in fact, they say and do what no one would ever conceive to be likely. Mm. And again, mm. this this seems to me to be, uh, once more, is this a paradox? Is it a dichotomy? Is it Doyle wanting things both ways almost? Mm. Um, because y- you've got this idea that, that real crime is, it is grim and artless. Mm. And and banal, mm. but then on the other hand, you've got these wild behaviours and wild outbursts that no novelist would dare to put in. Yes, so yeah. it, it's this again caught in something of a cleft stick. Yes, yeah, yes, and I think the the fascination with the criminal psychology, criminal behaviour, 
is something that he, that stayed with him throughout his life. Mm. And that's probably best evidenced by his membership of the, the Crimes Club. Mm. Um, so the Crimes Club was uh, essentially a dinner society. It started <laughs> as a private dinner society with uh, Arthur Lampton, who was a, a lawyer uh, and himself a criminal justice campaigner, um, who got together with a few friends, and among them H.B. Irving, Henry Irving's son, and uh, Professor John Churton Collins, who was a... Uh, Shakespeare scholar, um, but also a sort of literary critic too, and and a number of people. Conan Doyle was actually in the sort of second wave of members who, who uh, Lampton referred to as neophytes, who uh, who took the membership up to twelve, and they included people like, uh, um, well, I think later it included people like Sir Edward Marshall Hall, who was a I think a, a jurist and uh, actually was a spiritualist too. Um, Sir Bernard Spilsbury, who was the, I think, the Home Office pathologist, and later people like um, Hornung and um, uh, Jerome K. Jerome became members. Um, Hornung is particularly interesting because he he wrote a, a Raffles story called The Criminologist Club in 1905, in which uh, Raffles dines with members of a, a criminology society and uh, and robs the host. It's quite a, quite a good story. Um, but that the the whole dinner club. Um, uh, met four times a year under Chatham House rules, uh, adopted the name, I think, Our Society to, <laughs> uh, to avoid the sort of sensationalist connotations in the 1940s and um, uh, eventually ad- admitted women in the, in the 1990s. Um, it's worth singling out here as well a research thesis by um, Carrie Selina Paris, a PhD thesis that was written in 2016, which I think is probably the best single study of the Crimes Club. And um, she makes some really fascinating points about about the individuals involved in this, the, their intersection with campaigns and their motivations and reasons for being involved with with this kind of society. But one of the things that really struck me was that she talks about how the, the society came about at a point where there is the emergence of forensics uh, and the impact that that was having on the criminal justice system. Uh, and there's almost this sort of tension between that on the one hand and a kind of sensationalist populist coverage of crime in the press and um of course arguably conan Doyle sits right in the middle of that the sherlock holmes stories sit right in the middle as being a representation of both the sort of scientific rationalism of the detective while also being sensationalist detective novels at the same time but it's an excellent thesis it covers an awful lot of ground it has uh, more information in it than anybody uh, else has really uncovered about the the club, and I'll I'll put a link to it in in the show notes. Uh, and and Conan Doyle presented at the Crimes Club several times, mostly on the Adalji case and on the Oscar Slater case, but also that case I mentioned earlier, responsible and irresponsible criminals. He gave a speech on that in 1910, um, and then in later years, 1919, he he gave a talk on the psychic uh, in crime, uh, and that led to a period in the 1920s where he was bringing in more. Uh, spiritualist topics really seems to have brought a created a kind of very difficult relationship with the crimes club um and in fact he did uh sort of walk off in a huff uh at one meeting in the late 1920s when um one person gave a speech and, and i think ended with three rather um off color or blue jokes <laughs> and uh it was very much not to his um not to his taste at all um but he did actually come back later yeah, I, it, 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 
was an interesting group of people and, and very specific in the early days. It just, this, this mix of people involved with, with the legal world mm. and then journalists and writers. So as well as the, 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 the people you've mentioned, another member was A.E.W. Mason, who would create yes. uh, the French detective Inspector Hanno. Um, and Fletcher Robinson, as you say, mm-hmm. who, who of, of course was involved in the instigation of the uh, the, the Hand of the Baskervilles, um, and and one of the other people in this was was the the, the journalist and campaigner George R. Sims, mm. who uh, who wrote Christmas Day in the Workhouse, and he was also an on the ground journalist at the time of the Jack the Ripper murders. Mm-hmm. And he, he used to used to boast. I was mistaken for him once, you know that that kind yes. of um, <laughs> that kind of anecdote he loved to tell. <laughs> um, but again, the, the 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 crimes club, of course, was interested in the in the in the Ripper case. Mm. And on the the nineteenth of April, nineteen oh five, they did do a walking tour mm. um, of of um, of the Ripper sites and 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 the East End, which um, Conan Doyle was involved in. Years before this, Doyle had actually gone to the Black Museum in December 1892 hmm. uh, and seen some of the uh, the Ripper ex- exhibits there. Um, he, he was in the company of his E.W. Hornung again, Jerome hmm. K. Jerome, um, and and had the contacts, of course, to be able to get close hmm. to to the Black Museum. You know, not everybody could get into the Black Museum by any means, and so he, he was he was. In in this this group, hmm. um, and and as you said, stayed connected to it. So yeah. even though he lost interest, apparently, or for whatever reason, with the strange studies, yes, he certainly didn't lose interest in 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 true crime and the investigation of true crime. Yes, yeah, and of course, that lifelong fascination with true crime is something that feeds into his uh, into the into his greatest literary creation, into the the Sherlock Holmes stories. Yes, you can see, uh, as 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 we've said, just after the strange studies, he writes the Hound of the Baskervilles, mm. and then in 1903 is persuaded to begin writing the series that becomes the Return of Sherlock Holmes, um, and and you can see a couple of connections perhaps to the strange studies emerging mm. in these stories. I mean, in in the the solitary cyclist, Holmes is investigating the 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 persecution of the tobacco millionaire, John Vincent Harden, which is very close to George Vincent Parker. Yes, indeed. Um, and um, there's also a, probably written in 1903, published in January 1904, The Norwood Builder. Mm. And this is particularly interesting because if you think about the Emsley case, you actually have Mullins trying to set up Ems yeah. for murder by planting evidence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is this is precisely what happens in the Norwood Builder. Yes, where it, it's a different case, obviously. Uh, yeah, John yeah. Soldake is trying to fake his own death, and then frame uh, McFarlane mm. for this. But you do have this kind of trying to get a man hanged for a crime he didn't commit, and then just add some extra evidence, plant it. Yes. I mean, in, in, in this, like with Mullins, really, it's overstepping the mark and, and, and over-egging the pudding. And Old Acre's a jilted lover as well, isn't he? Yeah, so he's he's got this kind of connection to, to Parker in that way. Um, the, the, the McFarlane's mother years ago has rejected Old Acre, and he's he's simmered. He hasn't been one of these hot-blooded things. It's He's simmered for years. His, yes. his feelings of resentment, and then he works out this 
supposedly perfect scheme to 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 get his revenge. Yes, he'd definitely not get away with the insanity defense. <laughs> and there's there's another. It's not a direct connection to these these stories because it's 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 earlier in the in the canon. Um, but there's there's an interesting quote um, from Holmes in the Boscombe Valley Mystery. Mm. Circumstantial evidence is a very tricky thing," answered Holmes thoughtfully. "It may seem to point very straight to one thing." But if you shift your own point of view a little, you may find it pointing in an equally uncompromising manner to something entirely different. Mm. And when Doyle is writing of the Emsley case in Strange Studies, he writes this. It is true that the cumulative force of the evidence against Mullins was very strong, and that investigation proved the man's antecedents to have been of the worst. But still, circumstantial evidence even when it all points one way and there is nothing to be urged upon the other side, cannot be received with too great caution, for it is nearly always possible to twist it to some other meaning. Mm-hmm. So again, he's, he's using his views or voicing his own views on the legal system through Holmes. Yes. Yeah. And this does happen, happen quite often. Yeah, it does. So that's all we've got time for this episode. If you'd like to read the show notes, you can find them at doingsofdoyle.com. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a rating or review on your podcaster of choice. Um, Or perhaps becoming a sponsor, you can find out more at the doingsofdoyle.com website or at our Patreon page. So, Paul, what have we got next time? Next time, we'll be having a chat with uh, Jonathan Cranfield of Liverpool John Moores University who's edited the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes for the Edinburgh Works series. Great. So we look forward to speaking to Jonathan next time. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. And Conan Doyle really remembered this because in December 1903, at the centenary dinner for Madame Two Swords, he recounted the thrill of entering what he called the sacred halls of the Chamber of Commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often, you know, uh, uh, and it's always... Uh, Mark, oh, sorry. Sorry, go on, yeah. You said Chamber of Commerce. Did I say Chamber of Commerce? <laughs> you did. <laughs> <laughs> the sacred halls of the Chamber of Commerce. With all its horrors. <laughs> <laughs>